It's King Nebuchadnezzar and the Fiery Furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the Starops prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the Starops prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers, officials, assembled for the dedication of all the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, thyre, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these, the men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not fall down and worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we, are not, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver, deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your, your majesty's hand. But, but even if he does not, we want you, want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, Twenty, and commanded soon some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace, the king's command was so. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made the image of... Oh, right. Urgent of the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the starops, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god other than their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Are you... Res- oh, yes, hello. There we go. Uh, this microphone's new to me. I feel like I should be landing aeroplanes in a control tower or something. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil. Um, I have been a member of All Saints for quite some time, and I've been preaching here ever since my wife let it slip to our then vicar that I had done this before during Interregnum <laughs> at some point, and uh, I've never escaped since. So you're stuck with me today. I apologize. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for everything you do for us. I pray that this morning you would isolate us from our outside lives. I pray that you would show us your meaning for us. I pray that you would translate my words into your meaning for each of us here this morning. Amen. So a few weeks ago, um, I was watching the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, and I heard what I think must have been the best sermon stroke eulogy ever. Not because it was only 504 words, three minutes, um, but because Justin Welby said exactly what needed to be said so brilliantly. He spoke about the Queen's unwavering faith, of her grieving family who grieved just like any other family. But most of all, he described the Queen as somebody who lived her whole life in the understanding, based on her faith, that she was to serve her people, not the other way around. And that attitude is uh, of service. It's in stark contrast to many monarchs and leaders in history, and even in contrast to many that find themselves in positions of power today. Monarchy and the place of monarchs in the world we live in today is, of course, very different from the monarchy 
the royal families in the Old Testament. Here and now, we live in a constitutional monarchy where our royal family remains, but decisions are taken by an elected government. The relationship between the crown and the government is a bit more complicated than that because it's the monarch who invites the elected party leader to form a government, for example. But power still lies with the elected officials. In effect, the monarch agrees to abide by the decisions of the government of the day. That's why we never really know what the monarch's political position is. And our late queen was a dab hand at navigating this potentially tricky path. But it is fair to say she still had real power. She had that power to influence with such integrity. Just by showing up to something, she could break down barriers. Just think about what was achieved in Northern Ireland because she was willing to shake hands with those people who had previously hated her, who had killed a member of her own family. Her acceptance of their change was as much a part of the peace process as anything done by any elected official. So why am I talking about the monarchy? Well, today's reading, as you've heard, takes us back to a time when kings and the odd queen ruled absolutely. None of this democracy nonsense. You got to be a king because you were tougher and stronger than anybody else. You and your family retained a crown by fighting where necessary. You got rich by taxing people. And of course, you got slaves to do the dirty work and build whatever you wanted, as we heard. If you were a king back then, you told people what to do. You made the rules. And here in the third chapter of Daniel, we've got a king who's gone full-on megalomaniac. You might remember in the previous chapter that we heard of a couple of weeks ago, um, where Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream for him after explaining that really God was the only one that could help in the interpretation. That wasn't great for Nebuchadnezzar to hear because he kind of sees himself as a god. And Daniel explained that only God's kingdom will last forever. And of course, God, through Daniel, was giving Nebuchadnezzar a chance to join that kingdom. And as we left it, Nebuchadnezzar praised God. And we might have thought at the end of chapter 2 that he'd learned his lesson. But as we start chapter 3, we realise that just because Nebuchadnezzar was praising God, that didn't turn into anything other than empty words. And over time, and we think a significant amount of time has expired between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has become more deluded and he's concocted this scheme to ensure that he receives proper praise and worship from his people. He has this giant monument built covered in gold and most people think that that's him trying to replicate uh, the image that he saw in that dream. We're not sure, but whatever, this thing was 30 metres tall and a massive gold edifice to show how powerful he was, to show that his authority was there and hopefully that his reign would last forever. And his idea was clearly to use this as a test of allegiance. So he comes up with a scheme to force everybody to fall down and worship this thing whenever they hear music. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown into this blazing furnace. And as you might expect, nearly everyone is happy to do as they're told. Faced with that choice... A simple bit of worshipping some silly statue or death in a fiery furnace. 
you can see why most people just got on with it and did what they were told. And there are clear parallels here with our own lives and something to think about perhaps as you reflect on this later. I don't want to go off too far on this tangent, but think, what are we forced to bow down to? Is it money? Is it stuff? Is it jobs or something else? In our world, we're not forced to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol, but we are tempted to worship many things that take our eyes off the true prize. Our relationship with God is easily compromised when we accept the subtle pressures of our modern world and focus on some of those things that are not important. And as I said, that's something to reflect on later. But getting back to this story, Nebuchadnezzar is told by some of these mystics that there are three high-ranking Jews, some Jews who you have set over the affairs of Babylon. So these were guys that Nebuchadnezzar had, had employed to do a job for him. They weren't complying. Now, perhaps these mystics, these wise men, perhaps they wanted to look good. Perhaps they secretly thought that worshipping a 30-metre-tall idol was stupid. And perhaps they hated the idea. Perhaps they hated the idea that they were still doing it while Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were not. Or maybe they didn't like the idea that these guys had been elevated to a position of authority. Whatever the reason... Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts. He's the king. His word goes. And so naturally, disobedience makes no sense to him. He's enraged at the sheer audacity of people going against him. He sees this as treason. It's not merely a religious thing, but something that, if not dealt with, could threaten his very monarchy. Oddly, though, he does give the three another chance. He gives them a simple choice. He says, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, a couple of weeks ago, when Ben looked at Daniel 2, he mentioned Putin. And plenty of others have tried to blend political and spiritual power. Just think about how Hitler used the church in his political rhetoric. Or how in North Korea all other religion is removed while the leader is given godlike status. There have always been, and there still are, leaders who cannot bear the idea that their people could possibly worship anyone but them. Nebuchadnezzar's gone beyond being a politician who uses God to their own ends, like some American conservatives, for example. Nebuchadnezzar does believe there is one true God. Unfortunately, he believes it to be himself. So we've got these three Jews being questioned by the king, who believes that he holds all the cards. And these three reply how we would love to reply if we had the courage. Whether I would reply as they did, I'm not sure. Something else to think about later as you ponder this morning. Shadrach and co. face a test of allegiance, but for them, this is a true test of their allegiance to God. They're not willing to go through the motions. They're not willing to do whatever you need to do just to get through this and get on their way. They are not willing to do what children do and make promises whilst keeping their fingers crossed behind their back. They know this is a true and real test of allegiance. They won't compromise. Their God, 
their allegiance to their God is everything to them. And so they tell the king that if they're thrown into the fire, their king can rescue them. And that he will rescue them. But even if he doesn't, they are still not going to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Now, of course, that infuriates the king, as we heard, and he carries out his threat. He even goes as far as making the fire seven times hotter than normal. And, of course, the guys are thrown in. It's so hot, it kills the soldiers that threw these three in. But as we know, they're not harmed. And Nebuchadnezzar can see them walking around in the flames along with a fourth figure, one who Nebuchadnezzar describes as looking like a son of the gods. Not only were they saved, but someone was with them in their ordeal. God doesn't just fix the problem. He sends comfort and help in human form, as he later sends Jesus to us. The three men had no question in their minds that God could take care of them, but their faith also enabled them to understand that although God was able to help them, he might not. Faith isn't believing that God will make everything right. It's believing that God can, and then leaving the decision to him. Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So why then did God let these three men get into the fire in the first place? Why not just put out the flames? Why go through all the, all the aggro of getting them into the furnace? Well, as Christians, we'd quite like to stay out of the fire, wouldn't we? Life is hard enough without being dragged through trials and tribulations. But that is life. What marks us out as Christians should be how we handle that life. As Christians, what we do in the fire matters It's how we react in times of hardship and struggle that make us different, that truly illustrate, or should do, the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Now, in that moment, when Nebuchadnezzar saw the unharmed men walking around, supported by someone who is clearly Jesus, he truly understood how being a servant of God was so completely and utterly different from being a subject of his He understood the difference between all those who worshipped him because they were told to and those who worship God because they love God. In short, Nebuchadnezzar has a demonstration right in front of him of real faith, of a faith that is not born of coercion but is freely given. Now, as we'll see in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar still got some lessons to learn. He is by no means the finished article. But he has been shown the difference between an earthly king who would like to think he is God and the one true God. There's no comparison. It's interesting for us. We, at least in this country, are not told not to be a Christian. We're not told not to practice our faith. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were not actually told not to worship their own God. They could have done that in their own time. Nebuchadnezzar knew, after all, that they were Jews. They were simply supposed to worship this giant gold thing when they were near it and heard the music. But for them, that would have been a compromise too far. 
They knew they could only worship their one true Lord by making the point that they only had one Lord and Master. I suppose the question for us is, do we? Or do we let the noise of life distract us into making compromises so that we end up doing half a job? The thing about the rock-solid faith of Shadrach and, and the other two is that they knew God would look after them, that he could save them. But even if he didn't save them from the flames, they still trusted him and were prepared to die for their beliefs. Bowing down to somebody else was not an option. They knew that this short life is the gateway to life everlasting. In this life, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a queen or wherever you are on the social ladder that this world puts so much store in. As Justin Welby ended his eulogy by saying, the pattern for many leaders is to be exalted in life and forgotten after death. The pattern for all who serve God, famous or obscure, respected or ignored, is that death is the door to glory. Amen to that.